Good morning. Wasn't that some great worship? Wow. I mean, Jacob even did well. You know? What, what was that cardboard box thing you're banging on back here? <laughs> I'm just teasing. No, everybody did great. Um, I'm Alex Dennis. No, actually, I'm not. Um, <laughs> I'm Peter, by the way. <laughs> I heard that. Too much hair. Yeah. Well, a couple of weeks ago, or I guess several weeks ago now, Jacob asked me to uh, fill in a little bit and give you um, a message from God's Word. So that's what I plan on doing today. Um, we're in the middle of this series called Summer on the Mount, based on the Sermon on the Mount in Matthew chapter 5 and following. And um, I want to begin with a story. Uh, maybe you can relate. Back when I was a kid, I went to a very small private school, so maybe in the whole school from grades 1 to 8, maybe 200 people if we're lucky. So my own grade was about 20 students, and that was it, okay? And I remember one time, I think I was in the sixth grade, um, the sixth grade teacher for some reason, remember those old desks, some of you maybe my age or uh, maybe a little older, they, you know, you could put things into them, you know? I don't know if they still have those or not, but um, we had those desks, and we were assigned seats in the sixth grade classroom, and our teacher did boy, girl, boy, girl, boy, girl, and of course, all of us guys were like, this is crazy, I want to sit by my, my best friend, you know? Um, anyway, I was sitting next to this one girl, and I remember this one class time, this one period, and she starts just annoying me, and she starts just kicking a little bit my desk, you know, and I'm like, stop it. I and I keep telling her, I kept, stop it, you know, and she'd do it up five minutes later, do it again, you know, and I thought in my head, you know, this is going to end right now. <laughs> I'm throwing down, you know. <laughs> I took my foot and man, did I push her desk and it went flying across, halfway across the classroom and the teacher, of course, I got in trouble. She looked at me and everything else and I thought, but at least I got my revenge, you know. Well, that's actually what we're talking about today, is this idea of revenge and retaliation as we talk about the Summer on the Mount. And, you know, when we think about the Sermon on the Mount, we've already looked at a lot of things that can be something that is really hard, you know, stepping on our toes, as Alex mentioned last week. And today is not going to be any different. When we look at this passage today, this idea of retaliation and revenge um, it's going to get probably a little uncomfortable. Um, I know it was for me studying and restudying it again over the past couple weeks and doing some reading and things like that on it. And, and, and especially when it comes to the application part, it, it's, I, I got a little uncomfortable. I was like, God, uh, I don't know. That, that's, that goes against everything that I've basically have grown up in the culture that I live in. You know, how do I, how do, I do this? What does this look like? And so maybe you're going to struggle the same way a little bit this morning with that. But that's what God, God's Word does, doesn't it? I mean, it's like a two-edged sword. It reaches deep inside us and penetrates us. And we have to allow God's Spirit, His Word, as well to form us, to shape us, to change us. So let's take a look. We're going to look at Matthew 5, all right? Matthew chapter 5, looking at verses 38 to 48. We're going to start out with just 38 to 42. A lot of this is going to be on the screen behind me. Hopefully I'm not too much in the way of you being able to see it. So let's just start with this first uh, several verses. 
Jesus went on to say this. He says, you have heard that it was said, an eye for an eye and a tooth for a tooth. But I say to you, do not resist the one who is evil. But if anyone slaps you on the right cheek, turn to him the other also. And if anyone would sue you and take your tunic, let him have your cloak as well. And if anyone forces you to go one mile, go with him two miles. Give to the one who begs from you, and do not refuse the one who would borrow from you. Now, before we get into some of the teaching here, I want to refer you to a great book. It's um, called Studies in the Sermon on the Mount. It's a really big book, actually, pretty thick. But I went through it as sort of devotional. The chapters are pretty short. And I want to recommend that to you because there's a lot of good stuff about the Sermon on the Mount that, comes, uh, that is written in this book. It's written by uh, D. Martin Lloyd-Jones. He was uh, a minister um, in the Anglican Church for a little while and then basically came out of that uh, sort of um, uh, time frame back in the early 20th century and late 20th century as well. And I, I can't highly recommend this enough. I mean, it is just a great, fantastic book. And so I'm going to take some of the ideas I'm presenting to you today from here, and you're going to see uh, Lloyd-Jones, a quote from him a little bit later, because he has a great way of putting it. But what's the first point that I want to look at as we consider these first several verses? Well, I want to highlight it. I think it's in purple up here. Next slide. Yeah. Um, I originally had it in orange. Thanks, Jacob. You know, <laughs> I'm just giving a hard time. Alex does it. Why can't I, right? Um, verse 38. Let, let's look at what Jesus says first and foremost. You have heard that it was said, an eye for an eye and a tooth for a tooth. And I want to focus on that highlighted part, that you have heard that it was said. Now, this is taking... A, a reflection, Jesus is, on what is written in the Old Testament law or civil law back in Exodus chapter 21, 23 to 25. And there's other places too where this is reiterated, but this is one of the main places. It says there, but if there is harm, then you shall pay life for life, eye for eye, tooth for tooth, hand for hand, foot for foot, burn for burn, wound for wound, stripe for stripe. Now, in this Old Testament text, this is in the civil law. So if someone were to, I don't know, come up and hit you and you get into a fight and he knocks out your tooth, right, unprovoked, then what was allowed is that that person's tooth was to be knocked out. Or if someone were to sue you, then you could return that favor, if you will, and sue that person and so on and so forth. But the way this was interpreted over time, especially when you get into the New Testament time, is they found this as a justification to take offense and go after the other person for revenge. All right? But that wasn't actually the point of the Mosaic law here in regard to a tooth for a tooth. Instead, it was this. It wasn't to encourage people to take offense and then sue the other person or be able to have the opportunity to knock the other person's tooth out or whatever. Rather, it was to restrain God's people from personal revenge and the excesses of justice. Let's take a moment to think about that. This law was actually given to restrain God's people from personal revenge because it was supposed to be enacted on a civil level, that is a state level or a governmental type level in the, in the, in the uh, area of Israel and in the, in the country of Israel. And it was to refrain from excesses of justice, that is to go beyond 
what is actually due to that person when they did something to you. So if someone knocked out your tooth, it was to hopefully restrain people from requiring the death penalty from just having someone knock the tooth out, right? That's what it was for. But rather, during Jesus' time, it was being taught that, look, this is what the Mosaic Law says. And what you can do is you can take revenge on this person. And if they hurt your arm, you can hit them and take their arm. If they took one of your friend's life or your spouse's life or something like that, then you can take their life. You can go after them. But that wasn't the point. The whole point was to refrain the revenge to restrain that revenge and that, and that personal offense and be able to have actual justice applied rather than retaliation. And so as we look at this morning more into what Jesus is going to say here as we get into our other points, we need to make sure up front that we understand what this teaching is really about because there can be a lot of confusion about turning the other cheek. We hear that a lot, even in our own culture still today. Oh, turn the other cheek, turn the other cheek. What does that mean, though? And there are a lot of different ways that this has been understood. And so there are three, way, three things that I think we need to avoid, and then we're going to go into the teaching, all right? <clears throat> because we don't want to get it confused just like the Pharisees and the leading Jewish, Jewish uh, rulers did in the New Testament times, right? So what is the teaching not about? Well, first of all, we need to understand it's not about the world. It's not about nations or unbelievers. And what that means is that Jesus is teaching his disciples. It's not for the world, per se, to follow these teachings. And in fact, they really can't, right? I mean, to a certain extent, maybe they can, but overall they can't because they don't have the power to do that. They don't have the Holy Spirit in their lives in order to enact this consistently. So it's not about unbelievers. It's actually talking to us believers. That's the whole setting of the Sermon on the Mount. Secondly, it's not about our duties to country as a citizen. It's, it's not about asking, okay, can I serve in the armed forces, or what is, how am I supposed to relate to my government, and things like that. You know, if we want to get into those types of things, there are plenty of other New Testament texts we can look at, but it's not about that. And probably the biggest misunderstanding is, is point number three here. And that is, this text is not about capital punishment. It's not about war. It's not about whether or not um, those things are allowable. Is there a just war or if uh, there's a time for capital punishment and things like that? It's not about that at all because the context demands it's about us, God's people. He said, you have heard that it was said an eye for an eye. Well, who? You and I, those who know the scriptures, believers. So it's not about that at all. It's about our personal relationships with others on a daily basis. In other words, how is a Christian to respond to personal attack? You know, I responded in that sixth grade setting with saying, I'm going to retaliate and I'm going to show this, show this lady up, right? Wham! And there goes the desk. But is that the correct response? What about when you're at work and someone is giving you a hard time? Someone is that just person who's always going behind your back and, and telling gossip and rumors and trying to stab you in the back and trying to get you fired maybe. How do you respond to that? What does God require? Do we take revenge? Do we retaliate? That's the question that is here before us. And this is the first thing that Jesus says. This is my point too. Kill the ego. Now what do I mean by that? 
Ego is just another word for self, right? We have to kill the self. I was joking earlier this week, I was telling uh, Alex, you know, I was thinking about if I were to title this sermon, I'd entitle it, Kill Yourself. I was like, oh no, I better not do that. <laughs> that sounds bad, you know? And then you don't want to keep that mantra in your head, you know, that causes all sorts of problems. So no, let's just avoid that. So I, I said, kill the ego, kill the self, okay? Kill the self. This is what this text is actually about. All right, let, let's dig in a little bit further here. Matthew 5, 39, the first half. But I say to you, do not resist the one who is evil. And I want to focus on that. Do not resist the one who is evil. What is this idea of resist? Well, when we look and we study a little bit further, we find out that resist means to stand up for one's cause or insist on one's rights. And that's exactly how this passage of eye for an eye, tooth for a tooth was being interpreted during Jesus' time. You have the right. You need to stand up. And you need to fight that and retaliate and, and avenge yourself. But Jesus is saying, actually, that's not what you need to be doing. What you need to be doing and what this text is really about is you don't stand up for your cause. You're not trying to insist upon your own rights. Rather, you are to turn the other cheek. You are allow that insult, and don't return insult for insult. You are not to retaliate. You hit me, so I'm going to hit you. No, that's not the right attitude, Jesus is saying. Now, there is a place for justice, right? So don't misunderstand me, and I don't think Jesus is trying to say, get rid of that, jettison that, don't worry about justice. That's not what he's talking about. He's, ask, he's asking us to consider what is our personal attitude toward this. And are we going to pick up something and retaliate on our own? There is a place, a proper place that God has set up, which I'll mention a little bit more later, that he has set up for justice. But it's not for us to do. It is not for us to take on our own personal selves to make that justice happen. Matthew 5, 39 goes on to say, But if anyone slaps you on the right cheek, turn to him the other also. We must kill the ego. We must not be so concerned about ourselves being offended and standing for our rights. Now, that sounds really radically crazy, I think, to a lot of us, doesn't it? Because we live in America, and what are we about? <laughs> our rights, right? Now, don't get me wrong. I believe in rights and all that sort of a thing. But there comes a time when sometimes that Americanism starts to encroach upon what Jesus says and starts to flip it on its head, doesn't it? We have to understand that there is a proper way to understand our rights and put into practice what Jesus is saying here. Jesus is saying you are not to have this attitude of revenge and to stand up for your rights. And when we look at Jesus, if we're going to be honest... That's what he did, right? Remember when he went to the cross? Did he stand up for his rights? No, he didn't. He perfectly had rights. He even perfectly observed that he had the right. He could have called a host of angels down, right, to defend him, but he didn't. You know, this is so countercultural. Ever since probably we were little babes, right, growing up, that we probably don't even tend to recognize some of these things anymore. I want to go to the next slide here. 
You guys, you guys ever see this? You do you. You ever go on I-10 <laughs> and you see those billboards? Um, and, it, and it's for uh, the, the Gila River Casino Hotels. You do you. You see, that's what our culture is constantly telling us. You do you. That is, it's you. You are the center of the universe. Okay? When you can do things your way. And there's so many times that we interpret Scripture that we can do things our way. And that's what the Pharisees and Sadducees were doing there in the New Testament times when Jesus was giving this. He's saying, look, no, you are not to interpret that text that you can take revenge. That's not the point. In fact, you personally are to put yourself aside. You're not the center of the universe. You're not to do the things the way that you want to do them, your way. You guys remember YOLO? I mean, that's like five minutes ago, so it's old now, right? <laughs> What's funny is just this past week I was getting my hair cut. Yeah, um, Alex, I get haircuts. So, um. <laughs> and uh, the guy actually said, you only live once, right? Ha, ha, ha. And I was like, that's weird. I haven't heard that in like a long time. Um, but YOLO was real popular, I don't know, maybe six months ago, right? You only live once. What's the whole idea behind that theme, YOLO? It's all about you. You're the center of your universe. And everybody else, you know, if someone offends you or tries to bring you down, well, you're to rise up and avenge, right? This is so countercultural, not just to the time of Jesus, but to our time. I really like how Martin Lloyd-Jones um, paraphrases this idea, and so I got the quote behind me. He says, To be struck on the face is humiliating and insulting, but an insult can be given in many ways. It can be done with the tongue or by a look. Our Lord desires to produce in us a spirit that does not take offense easily at such things. Wow. Everybody's offended these days, right? People are always looking for offense. And you know, it's easy for us to sort of, yeah, I affirm that and agree when we look at it, our culture. But, you know, let's, take, let's get introspective here. Do you constantly take offense at what your wife says? Do you constantly take offense at what your husband says? Do you constantly take offense at what some of your neighbors say? It's easy to criticize others, isn't it? It's easy to observe that everybody is offensive council culture, but you know what? We're a part of that mess. If we're really truly going to look at ourselves and be introspective, we realize it's easy to take offense, isn't it? It's very easy. But Jesus, as Martin Lloyd-Jones is paraphrasing for us, is saying our Lord is trying to produce in us a spirit that does not take offense easily, that does not seek immediate means of retaliation. He wants to, us to reach a status in which we are indifferent to self and self-esteem. Now, don't misunderstand what he's saying. He's not saying that you can't have a healthy self-esteem. He's talking about that he doesn't want you to be concerned all about yourself. That's the point. And that you are the center of the universe. This is greatly encapsulated by Jesus' words in Luke 9.23. 
He says, and he said to all, if anyone would come after me, let him deny himself and take up his cross daily and follow me. Two, two highlights here on this phrase or on this uh, verse. Deny himself. This is the most difficult thing, I think, as a Christian that we must try to accomplish through God's power of his spirit. Deny ourselves, Kill the self. This is the most difficult. You know, I think God created marriage in part to teach us how selfish we really are. <laughs> then God created this idea of having children to once again show us how selfish we are. Because there are so many times that I'm doing something and I hear, Daddy, Daddy, and it's like, oh, what? I'm sitting here reading. Guess what? That's making myself the throne. That's making myself the most important. There are times when my wife, Jennifer, yeah, I'm going to confess this here. She'll ask me to do something, and it's like, man, I don't want to do that. <laughs> but that's putting myself as king. The self has got to be killed. The idea of de to deny is actually this. And this is, a, this is what is said in a theological dictionary. I looked up this idea in the original language here. And this is, this is how it's explained. And it's so in our face. It, it, he says it this way. I must not confess myself in my own being, nor cling to myself, but abandon myself in a radical renunciation of myself. And not merely of my sins. I must no longer seek to establish my life of myself, but resolutely accept death and allow myself to be established by Christ in discipleship. That's what it means to deny yourself. Yourself has got to be crucified with Christ. And then the second part of that phrase that Jesus gave us here is take up his cross once in a lifetime. No, daily, right? Daily. Daily. There is um, a guy by the name of George Mueller. I don't know if you've ever heard of him, but he lived back in the 19th century um, in Britain. And um, he's very well known for basically providing um, homes for orphans. And he also started... Um, education for lots of different children and orphans and things. He, it's said that he's had over 10,000, he was able to help serve over 10,000 orphans in his lifetime and help educate somewhere around like 200 different uh, students in his schools. And there's a story, probably the most famous story about him is when he's sitting at the table and he's praying and asking a blessing upon the food that they're about to have, even though they don't have any food. They, have, they, they, they don't have any money. They've run all out in, him, in his ministry. And he has his, the children he's taking care of at the moment and his wife and family. And they don't, there's nothing on the plates. But the table's set. They're ready to eat. But there's no food. And when he gets done praying, all of a sudden there's a knock on the door. And lo and behold... It's one of the chefs, and he's like, hey, I've got some bread. I found some bread. And he gives the bread. Well, all the while, unbeknownst to everybody in the family who's getting this bread and they're getting ready to eat it, the milk dude, the milk guy, I don't know what they called him back then. Um, back in that day, they had carts, you know, and they delivered the milk. It broke down in the front of his house. <laughs> and 
the milk guy decided to give all this milk to, to these orphans and to this guy's family. And so George Mueller is very well known for never taking any money from anybody. He just relied upon God and the generosity that he would well up in people's hearts to give to him in his orphanages and, and his ministry. And this is what's said of him in the book, um, George Mueller of Bristol by A.T. Pearson. He says, nothing is, no, is more marked in George Mueller to the very day of his death than this, that he looked to God and leaned on God, that he felt himself to be nothing and God everything. He sought to be always and in all things surrendered as a passive tool to the will and hand of the master workman. That's what God is looking for. God wants us to surrender our whole self. We've got to kill the ego. Now, what does the ego, killing the ego, look like? Now, we have to go kind of quickly through this, so I'm not going to spend a whole lot of time here. But Jesus actually gives us examples. You know, turn the other cheek. We already looked at that. But here's one little thing I want, I want to add to that about turning the other cheek. God has provided a means to bring about actual justice. Okay? He's actually instituted what we call government or the state. And it's talked about in Romans 12, and I just want to briefly read this. Beloved, says Paul there, never avenge yourselves. See, there's that idea. Never take revenge and retaliate, but leave it to the wrath of God, for it is written, <clears throat> vengeance is mine, I will repay, says the Lord. To the contrary, if your enemy is hungry, feed him. If he is thirsty, give him something to drink, for by doing so you will heap burning coals on his head. Do not overcome, be overcome by evil but overcome evil with good. As Christians, we do the opposite of what our world does, which is retaliate. Another way this killing the ego looks, being sued. Back there when you were in the time of Jesus, when you were sued, it, you could only sue for the outer cloak. But Jesus says, also give him the inner cloak as well. So you're supposed to be less concerned about your personal rights, as we've already mentioned, and more concerned about the justice and the upholding of the law and how it was intended. Another way that this looks like uh, killing the self is going the extra mile. In the time of the New Testament, Romans, as we know, uh, the soldiers would take certain goods and things and, and, and carry them from one city to the next, and they would require certain people to carry this for them. And Jesus is saying, look, if you are required to carry this for a mile or to that one stopping place, offer to go the next one too. The whole point is this, be prepared to go above and beyond what is demanded by civil law. Oh, no, that hurt my ears, <laughs> right? Let that sink in. Another one, giving to those who ask. Jesus says in Matthew 5, 42, give to the one who begs from you and do not refuse the one who would borrow from you. In other words, give without thinking about yourself. When someone needs a drink of water, there's, there are plenty of people who are along the streets of Phoenix, right? Don't think, oh, man, that, that's just a pain. I've I, I got things to do. I, I've got a schedule. No, give them some water. Stop. If you see somebody who's hungry or if you see somebody who needs food, stop. Take time out of your own schedule. Don't think about yourself. Don't even come close to thinking about yourself. Think of the other person. Don't ignore what is needed. So if this is what killing your ego looks like, 
not thinking about yourself, what does it look like when we start looking at the external world? That's the idea. Jesus now turns the idea. He says, now that we have your self in the correct perspective, now how should you treat others? How should you proactively treat others, that is to say? Well, that's point three. Love your enemies. Look at the passage here in verses 43 to 48. You have heard that it was said, you shall love your neighbor and hate your enemy. But I say to you, love your enemies and pray for those who persecute you, so that you may be sons of your Father who is in heaven. For he makes his sun rise on the evil and on the good and sends rain on the just and on the unjust. For if you love those who love you, what reward do you have? Do not even the tax collectors do the same? And if you greet only your brothers, what more are you doing than others? Do not even the Gentiles do the same? You therefore must be perfect as your heavenly Father is perfect. Now, let's think about this for a minute. Did it actually say love your neighbor but hate your enemy? Does anybody know the Old Testament passage on this? It actually didn't say that, okay? That was the interpretation of it in the New Testament time with uh, the leading Jewish leaders. Instead, look at Leviticus 19, 18, and 34. You shall not take vengeance or bear a grudge against the sons of your own people, but you shall love your neighbor as yourself. I am the Lord. And then verse 34. You shall treat the stranger who sojourns with you as the native among you, and you shall love him as yourself. For you were strangers in the land of Egypt. I am the Lord your God. You see, it was the interpretation. You know how they interpreted it? They said, my neighbor is my fellow Israelite. That's who my neighbor is. My neighbor isn't the one from, from Canaan or from the next country over. It's not the Gentile. They're dogs. They're unclean. I can't associate with them. That's how they interpreted it. But Jesus says what? And I've got it highlighted on the next one. Of course, it's in purple. Okay. <laughs> Love your enemies, right? Pray for those who persecute you. This is not easy. You know, I grew up in a Christian home, and when I read this, I'm like, yeah, I know that. <sighs> Maybe we're so used to hearing it if, we're, if we've been Christians most of our lives. But this is something that's tough. I've had enemies in my life. We all have had enemies in our life. Those who, who fight against us, right? We are to love them, and not only love them, but to pray for them. You know, I still have problems today praying for a particular person I would kind of consider as someone very difficult to pray for. <laughs> I sit there at night and I'm like, God, you know this. I'm having a hard time. I, I don't want to pray for this person. I really don't. It's hard. But look what Jesus says, you know. Can we go to the next? This is supposed to be. Okay. You know, if you just love your friends, right, good job, right? <laughs> That's what Jesus is basically saying. You could get a gold star, you know, or you get the trophy for loving your neighbor as yourself, you know. The point is, anybody can do that. You don't get a gold star for that. You don't get a trophy for that, right? You don't get a thumbs up from Jesus, right? <laughs> He's saying, you've got to love your enemies. Your neighbor is everyone around you, whoever you come into contact with. Even the Gentiles and people you consider to be dogs and, 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 and sinners and everything, they're the ones who love their, their neighbors and their friends. 
But I'm telling you, you've got to love your enemies. Jesus says, you therefore must be perfect as your heavenly Father is perfect. This is a really easy verse to take out of context, isn't it? But it's still even hard in context. We are to love perfectly. That's the idea. Because that's the context of it. Jesus is talking about loving your enemies. We, and we need to be like God in that he loves everybody unconditionally. And that's difficult. Jesus even said in John 13, 34, A new commandment I give to you, that you love one another just as I have loved you. And how did, how did Jesus love? He gave his life not just for you, but for the whole world. He gave it for Judas. He gave it for Pharaoh in the Old Testament times. He gave it for, name your most political uh, enemy in your mind. <laughs> okay? Fill in the blank. But we can't do it on our own. We can't love, love perfectly, right? And we're probably not even going to reach that in this life because of our sinfulness. But we can reach for the goal and the power of the Holy Spirit. Philippians 2.13 For it is God who works in you both to will and to work for his good pleasure. If we rely upon God's Spirit, he can help us in our relationships at home. He can help us in our relationships at work to love these people unconditionally, just as Jesus did. Here's a final quote I want to leave with you. And I think it sums up the whole thing well. We must rid ourselves of this constant tendency to be watching the interests of self, to be always on the lookout for insults or attacks or injuries, always in this defensive attitude. All that must disappear. And that, of course, means that we must cease to be sensitive about self. This morbid sensitiveness, this whole condition in which self is on edge, and so delicately and sensitively poised and balanced that the slightest disturbance can upset its equilibrium, must be got rid of. Is this a hard teaching? I think it's probably the most difficult thing for the saved, for anyone. Because I think it goes all the way back to the fall in the garden. What was it that drove that first sin? You can be like God. You can be your own God. Everything can revolve around you. But Jesus shows us what God created us for. To lay down ourselves and to love others, no matter who they are. And only then are we living in such a way that is pleasing to Jesus. Let's have a word of prayer together. Our God in heaven, thank you so much for this written record of Jesus' sermon that is so significant, so important. God, it's a hard one. It challenges, in some ways, maybe our patriotism. Um, but I hope we understand it in the way that it's intended. We can have certain um, understandings in a, in a good way of rights and things like that. Those things are good, but help us to remember that the way we live and we treat others is radically different than how a lot of times we grew up thinking about it. 
I pray that we remember that we are citizens of the heavenly Jerusalem and that Jesus is our king and that we live in such a way, in a kingdom way, a kingdom of God way. And we hope that, Lord, when we are able to do this by your strength and not our own, that others will see your light through us. Because that's the whole point, that we become, become conformed to the image of Jesus so that others will see us and so they too can be conformed to your image. They will have a sense of purpose and meaning and, and worship you and glorify you. And only then will they be truly happy, as we would say, or joyous. And I pray that you please help us in your spirit to do this. In Jesus' name, amen.